Howdy, Hypo. How are you guys doing? Good. Are you awake? It's fall. Is everybody fighting a sinus infection yet? Awesome. Awesome. Oh, that was for me. Sorry. All right. Oh, that's last week's sermon. All right. I wanted to show you something right at the beginning here. Um, when we get that up. Um, so last week, the office staff got, a, uh, got an email from, uh, from one of the families in the church of their kids' notes from the last sermon. And um, this is a lot funnier when you can see them. So, let me see if they're there, yeah. So this is, this is a sermon from, the sermon notes from last week, which probably looks like it would be a better sermon than the one I preached, kind of. Um, but the, the moral of the story here is, is that when you write something down, you can stay engaged better, I think, is the moral of the story. So there's um, sermon note pages in the pew rack in front of you. If you wish to draw pictures or take notes, um, we're on the fourth week of the Blueprint series, um, which is designed to help us live unstuck and uncluttered spiritual lives, and then together as a church. Because I don't know about you, you might have clutter in your attic or in your garage or something, and that's not the clutter that'll kill you. The clutter that'll kill you, the clutter that bothers me the most, being a father of four children, is the clutter that's in my hallway in the middle of the night. That's the clutter. That's what I'm talking about, the spiritual version of that. And so um, the idea of the Blueprint series is to take the Christian spiritual life and to simplify it as simple as possible, but no simpler. Kind of like a blueprint is, you're like, well, that's kind of complicated. Yes, it's kind of complicated, but not nearly as complicated as the building that you are in. And so even though sometimes, even when you simplify things down, you'd be like, well, Nick, can't you just have one thing instead of six? Well, that's not what a blueprint really is. It simplifies it enough so that you can get your head around it, but not so simple that it loses its integrity as a whole, right? And the, the six things as we laid them out, or the five so far, is one, that you have to connect with God. Ultimately, we are meant to relate to God, and He relates to us, and we need to figure out how that works through Christ in particular. The second is, is that part of that is connecting with others. We are meant to love and be loved by God and other people, namely through a new people he's created called the church. And then we have to understand how the church then lives in the world. And then we need to grow, one, in understanding the gospel. One of the saddest things about the Christian church is that most of the Christian church doesn't know the Christian message really or doesn't believe it deeply. We believe instead in some kind of therapy or moralism that's really crushing us. And then you have to know the Bible. The Bible is— puts itself forward as the Word of God written and the repository of what we know best about the supreme revelation of the image of God in the person of Jesus. So knowing the Bible is absolutely critical. And then last, the last two weeks are serve. That we're meant to be a people for others and that we are meant to serve the city that is the people that we find ourselves among. There's a number of ways um, to talk about how the Bible teaches that. In fact, any group of scriptures that I use is going to seem enormously selective, but one of the sort of most classic ones is in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, where Jesus' buddies, the disciples are, there's a couple of them who say, hey, when the kingdom of God comes, can we be the most important people, right? And Jesus' response, he says, he calls all, not just the two that asked him the question, but he actually calls them all together, and he says, listen, he said, you know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles, that's everybody who's not Jews, right? That's all the kingdoms of the world. He says, those who are considered rulers among them, they lord it over them. So they're rulers and they rule, right? And their high officers and officials exercise their authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, meaning you guys, we're going to be different. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you has to become your servant, and whoever wishes to be first must be a slave for all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, um, some people believe that Jesus died for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer and serve. He served us so that we don't have to. That's actually not the Christian message. Jesus took a particular suffering of moral penalty that we deserved— Upon himself and through him you'll never have to experience that he suffered for you That is he took on the just moral penalty that you deserve But the suffering that produces life the suffering that saves others and brings redemption and sends, sets captives free the, the that kind of suffering the kind of suffering he did 
is the kind of suffering that his people aren't delivered from, but that his people follow him into. That is, his people are a self-sacrificing people who, who put themselves in the position of servant. They don't just serve, but they put themselves into the position of servant. That is, to even become the slave of all people, and that's the only way Christians believe you can really be great. It's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to want to be great. But there's only one way to do it, and it is functionally opposite of how the world generally works. Um, I think it was in the work of David Wells where he said, um, a num- in surveys that have been done with the American public about when you ask people the question, what are you here for? In the, in the context of what does your life mean? Before about the middle of the 1970s, the majority answer was, I'm here to serve others. People fundamentally believed that the purpose of their life was they were here to serve others. And they found their happiness in serving others in the vocations, duties, and roles of a good life. Good there meaning morally good. About somewhere in the middle of the 1970s, the majority, it switched. Now, of course, it was building for a while, but it was somewhere in the middle of the 70s, before the me generation of the 80s, where it switched. That is, boomers and everybody younger. Where when you ask people that, the response that they would give is, I'm here to find happiness. I'm here to be happy. That's what I'm here. Life is too short not to be happy. It's okay to do what you need to do to be happy. And it marked a fundamental change in how we understood what we were meant to be as we changed from a culture of character to a culture of personality. It used to be the most important thing about you was your character. Now, of course, this wasn't true for everybody, but but when people were faking being a good person, they were faking being a person of character. Now, when people want to fake being a good person, they fake being a cool person. They don't fake being a person of character. They fake being a, like some kind of awesome because there's this change. And one commentator I was listening to this week in a podcast summed it up this way. This is the result when we believe our responsibilities to ourselves outweigh our responsibilities to others. I think that's a great quote. Because when you, when you say, why are you doing this to people who are doing something that's obviously immoral— They'll say something that ultimately can be arranged as something, I owe it to myself to divorce this person. I owe it to myself to do whatever. And that those are two—you are either the kind of person who believes— that your responsibility to yourself outweighs your responsibility to others, or you are the kind of person who believes that your responsibility to others outweighs your responsibility to yourself. And if you are a Christian, you either need to become more or become the kind of person who believes that your responsibility to others outweighs your responsibility to yourself in most key ways. Now, there might be a bunch of people in here who you've been Christians for a while, and you really think of yourself as that kind of person. Well, Nick, I am that kind of person. I'm a person of character. I'm that sort of person. I believe that I'm the kind of person who believes that my responsibility to others outweighs my responsibility to yourself. Oh, yeah? Okay. So let me just poke at you for a minute, because that's how I feel about myself, right? One of the videos that Design God Ministries has done is um, a video on this couple, Ian and Larissa Murphy. So— Ian and Larissa were dating in college. They'd been dating for about 10 months. She'd kind of got vague word back that he was looking for a ring. And then one day she got a call, I think she was in Pennsylvania somewhere, that he had been in a significant car accident. She prayed all the way to the hospital that it just wouldn't be his brain. She got there and she found out that it was. He had—he failed four out of five brain function tests one night. By the next morning, his brain was functioning, but he has suffered very severe long-term brain damage. He can do very little for himself. And they weren't engaged, and they weren't married. Right? This is the kind of guy who goes to a home. And she goes out, and she dates somebody else. Right? And as she prayed about this, and thought about it, and thought about God's will for her life, she, she loved the Ian before the accident. The, that Ian was still in there. He just couldn't get out. And she believed that She knew his intention before, and she had to ask herself theologically, what is marriage? 
And as she went through this, she decided to continue dating, and they continued dating. And then they had certain goals that they worked towards that would have to be possible for them to get married. And then as he sort of met these sort of like utterly basic human goals that they could communicate, for example, they got engaged, and they got married, and they are married. Okay? Now, some people in this room hear that, and this is what you can't help but think. What a waste. What a waste. That poor woman has just doomed herself to a lifetime of just agonizing, just pain. I mean, she's, she's really just thrown— I mean, she could have visited him in the, in the home he was in and really had a life. Awesome. Listen, that's the first thing that occurred to me. Sometimes it takes a very stark example to show us how much in us is the kind of person who believes our responsibility to ourselves is greater than our responsibility to others. Now, in this case, I believe, morally speaking, she took on a responsibility that she didn't already own. And she chose to go through grace a further mile than morality required. Okay, so I'm cheating a little bit. But at the same time, I, I, wanted to ma- I want to make the issue with us that we are not as much that kind of people as we would like to believe. Yet as you go through the Bible, over and over and over again, it says, you are not as important as the people around you. You are not as important as the people you are here to serve. You are not as important as those others. And if you don't think you can be happy serving others, it's because you have not become the kind of person that your humanity is meant to become morally so that you can take pleasure in your actual purpose. And because you're suffering from that level of vacuousness and shallowness, you can't imagine being happy doing what you're here to do, and so you rebel against the idea. But if you would become the person God has created you to be by following Jesus and becoming as substantive as Jesus is, you would be able to see that the road that he leads on is the road to greater, more reliable, longer-lasting, better, deeper purpose and happiness. And as you go through the Bible, it everywhere assumes that. In Galatians, it says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Philippians 2, 3 and 5, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Right? You'd be like, well, I can be humble. Keep going. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then what's the proof of that? Because your attitude should be the same as Jesus, who supremely didn't do that. That is, he doesn't just say, be generally humble and don't put yourself unnecessarily above others, but actually he's arguing that we should be disinterested in the old moral sense of, my self-interest doesn't figure into what should be done. Being morally disinterested doesn't mean you're not interested in morality. Or truth. Being morally disinterested means your personal interest doesn't matter in the moral decision you're going to make about what you're going to do. And what this verse is arguing is that is how you and I as Christians should make all decisions. And when we do that, do you know what position we're going to constantly find ourselves in? The position of sacrificial service. Because the thing that keeps us from serving others is our interests. And our denial of any responsibility we might have or any way love would drive us toward the interests of others. In Jeremiah 29, 4-7, I talk about this in the small group video, so you'll hear more about this. But when the Israelites go into exile, God says essentially he has two purposes for them, living inside the pagan city. Now this is important because in a second I'm going to show you a verse from 1 Peter that uses the metaphor for the church as equal to this. He says, we're not like Israel and like the people, the Jewish people in Israel, when they have their own promised land. The New Testament uses that as a metaphor for heaven. He, He says, right now as the church, we live among the secular city as a scattered people. And so the closest reality of the Old Testament life of the Israelites is when they lived among the pagan secular city when they were in exile in Babylon, which is where this passage is found. And Jeremiah says, speaks for God and says, he says, I have two purposes for you. He says, one, build houses and settle down, 
plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. The first claim is, as you live in the secular city, do not stop thriving as a distinct people in it. When it says, find people for your sons to marry and people for your daughter to marry, there, he is not saying anyone you want. It is implicitly being argued there among the Jewish people, among the distinct people. In the secular city, Christians should marry Christians and build a Christian home and raise Christian children. In fact, remember what made the Egyptians so terrified of the Jews when they had them in slavery in Exodus? Do you remember what made them so afraid of this people? It wasn't that they were Jewish and that they liked sheep and that they lived out in the day. It wasn't any of that. It was that they were multiplying. It was the fact that they married each other and were breeders. That's what terrified them. And you see this among social groups even in our own country, where different social groups would really love it if the other social groups didn't breed. And I'm not going to get into the bigotry of that at this moment. But one of the things God says about these people, and I think it would apply to us as well, and I could argue this from the New Testament another time, that we are meant to increase and not decrease as the church. But that is not our only purpose. As we grow as a people, we are not meant to be a stronger minority within the secular city, terrifying them that someday we might be in charge. We'll get that 51%, and then we'll ram everything down their throat we can, and they'll pay for all those years. No. No. That's, that is normal humanity. That's what everybody does. That is not what we are meant to do. We are meant to live for the good and the prosperity of the entire city. Even we are to live as the best possible citizens, even when they treat us like the most remote foreigners. When the secular city we live in tells us we don't belong and we're not a good citizen, we don't like you, and we don't like your ideologies, and you're what's wrong with the world, and they treat us like we're foreigners, we live Beautifully, like we're the most invested citizens. Not because this is our home, but because our home is totally settled. We know exactly where we're going. We know what God rewards. He rewards when we, like Jesus, look not to our own interests, but the interests of others, and we lay ourselves down for people who hate us and who are our enemies, and we can do that freely. When we're treated as foreigners, we're the most invested citizens. We live for the good of the whole city. Because we can accept, like Jesus said, and like Peter said in 1 Peter, that we are the elect, the chosen, among the scattered. He said, you are the scattered of the world, spread throughout all these different places, but you are the, he says, the elect and the chosen. That is, don't mistake our scattered minority status. For, for the notion that God has somehow abandoned us. Our scattered minority status is intended by God for our own growth and for the good of the peoples among whom we live, regardless of their behavior towards us, because we follow a suffering, murdered God. We suffer, we suffer because we follow a God who received oppression gladly, now, that doesn't mean that we, like, affirm it. We speak truth to it, but not with the knife in this hand. Because we follow Jesus. Now, I don't have time for that right now. What that means is if you look at these passages, the biblical argument about what it means to be a suffering, a sacrificial servant like Jesus, it means that within the church we do good to each other and we carry each other's burdens. That to our neighbors— whether they're believers or not believers, that we love them like we would love ourselves. That within our city, we seek the peace and prosperity of the whole city, not just ourselves, and not just the neighborhoods in which we cluster, because evangelical Christians disproportionately cluster in suburbs. And there, so therefore, if we are going to fulfill that, we have to think wider than the places we tend to cluster. In terms of our nation, according to some of these passages and others, we should be model citizens even when we're treated as non-citizens and foreigners. And related to the world, we're meant to go among all nations and be witnesses for the suffering Messiah. 
and when we're there to do whatever good we can. Which means, I think if you put this biblical doctrine together, it means you're here to discover happiness through your God-given purpose of serving others sacrificially out of love and truth. You are not here to get happiness. You are here to discover happiness along the way as you do what you're meant to do. Your purpose is to glorify God and to serve others through love and truth, sacrificially like Jesus, and in so doing, become the kind of person who discovers the rich depth of personal happiness that comes through that. That's what you're meant to be. Now, what I want to talk about for the next 160 minutes is the three culturally forgotten spiritual realities about sacrificial service. I think there are, th- there are three purposes built into the texture of Scripture, but forgotten among our secular moment that are very important for us to, to know, because if you don't know them, you will settle for something less than sacrificial service. And you can't. We can't. Okay? The first is that sacrificial service is the price of influence. If, if you're like, well, Nick, I'm not really into social action. I'm really into leading people to Jesus. And shouldn't we as a church? I mean, we're witnesses for the gospel. What we're really doing here is we're making disciples of all nations. And yes, disciples live beautiful lives towards our neighbors, and the city will be better off, and things will get better. But like, aren't we here to lead people to Jesus? And my answer is absolutely that's true. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that us talking is not the most persuasive thing in the world. I mean, you just think about the last person that told you something but wouldn't lay down the blood in their veins for that thing and how long you followed and believed them. The minute you realize the person isn't doing what they, what they say or what they're telling you you should do, it's, it's a problem. Like, remember—so this is a really politicized example, but that'll just get you to pay attention. Remember when— Al Gore was going around talking about global warming, and then it was found out that he had like a big mansion that used a lot of energy, right? Right, so he could be right about everything he says, right? Like, I'm not arguing either way, okay? But like, let's stipulate for the moment that he was right about everything he ever said. It was absolutely 100% right. All of a sudden, a large portion of people blew him off, right? Right? Absolutely. Yes is the answer to that question. They did a lot of just normal people who weren't really politically invested on either side were just kind of like, oh, seriously? Whatever. Right? Because we know when somebody really believes something, when they invest into it beyond their personal interest. That's when you know somebody really is real, right? When you're kind of like, you know, what you get out of this ended a long time ago. That's when you know they're in it because they're in it, not because of what they get out of it. That's one of the reasons why the husband who's been with a wife who's been very difficult for 20 years, or the wife that's been with a husband who's been very difficult for 20 years, that you go to people like that for marriage advice, or should. Because you know, like, okay, maybe they don't know how to change their spouse, but they get something about commitment clearly, because they're not in this because the other person is super awesome. And one of the things that you and I need to realize is that both—that that whether you use a negative or a positive example, people are moved by personal sacrifice. They're not moved nearly as much by eloquence. Not for very long. And if you and I want to have evangelistic effect, if we want people to know and follow Jesus, we're going to have to be like Jesus. And here's the problem. That does not just include being triumphant with Jesus. It means following what the older Christians used to call the way of the cross. Suffering like Jesus in a way other people saw, not so that they'd see it, but knowing they would see it, and being like Jesus in suffering to declare his value to all people so that they would look and they would see this person isn't just doing this so that they can be right or feel good about themselves or have a nice country club or whatever. They are really doing this because they believe in the absolute worth of this Savior. Sacrificial service is the price of influence, and if we don't do it, we won't have any. And if we do, we will have significant influence, and it will be rightly influential. It will be honest and truthful influence, which is much harder to break down and to destroy. The second thing is that contact is the context of change. 
both for you and for other people. That's one of the reasons why point two in the series was connect with others. You have to actually have personal and relational contact with people in order for them to change and for us to change. And if you try to help people at a distance, usually what happens is you make them more dysfunctional, you become more self-righteous, and in the long run, you actually move further apart rather than closer together. You have to know the people you help. There was a book written back in the 80s, I think, by Marvin Olasky, and it was called The Tragedy of American Compassion. And he said, during the late 16, 17, and early 1800s, um, in almost all the Christian and Jewish social organizations, it was believed that everybody involved in social ministry needed to know poor people personally. Right? You didn't give them money, but, you, but they would assign you to like a poor family in downtown New York City. And you, ha- you went and met with them because you needed to know poor people. In fact, the, in fact a number of the histories of, of uh, the American um, big money juggernauts of the early 20th century, it was said of a lot of them that they'd walk down the street, there were no bodyguards, they'd talk to four or five dirt poor people on their way into the building. There wasn't this kind of, these people are over here and these people are over here. Uh, many of them came from very humble beginnings. And there was this inner class sort of general connectedness, right? That has waned significantly with the creation of suburbs and the change of where we educate people and the, the dispersion of neighborhoods and all those kinds of things. And we're not in contact with the people we are meant to serve. And the more homogeneous we become, the shallower we become because there's not as much social stress in our lives. Love is a hard-fought virtue of character that doesn't, it feels like it gets better when our relationships are narrower, but it's not getting better. We're just becoming smaller, and so we make our world smaller through social media and by sorting the people to be just like ourselves, and we think we're very loving people because we don't have as many blow-ups, and that's not what's happening. What's happening is, is that we're living a narrowed life, and so we manage it better at the level of spiritual development that we're at. Right? One sort of funny um, cultural reference example of what this produces. Okay, we got the sound? Oh, come on. Okay. All right, so that's funny, but we can't listen to it. All right, so um, have you seen Goldmember? He's like, all right, Goldmember. Well, can can I be Michael Caine with a terrible accent? He's like, he goes, he goes, all right, Goldmember. He's like, if there's two things that I hate, it's that people who you know, who are disrespectful to other people's cultures and the Dutch, right? It, you know, even when we think we're the most enlightened, we can become the most bigoted. Um, if you haven't seen this, especially if you don't believe in Jesus and you think religion is idiotic and really bad for the world, I'd really encourage you to listen to Keller's talk at UC Berkeley on um, belief in an age of skepticism. In it, one of the things that he says to sort of engage with the audience, he says, I do think religion is one of the problems of the world. Because religion is one way people become moralists. And he introduces what I just call his progression, progression of moralism. And this, you can have this religiously, you can have this politically. There's lots of ways this happens, and this is one of the ways we become terrible to each other. And the first is, is that because you believe X, you begin to believe that you are somehow superior to another group of people, Right? So because you believe this—and this can be—this could be a political ideology. This could be a religious ideology. This could be like a—you grew up blue-collar and you work really hard, and so you think that people who work hard are good people and people who don't work hard are bad people, right? Or, or you could be a white-collar person. People who really stick it out and get good educations are successful people, and people who don't stick it out and get good educations, are th- those are like losers. Like there's all kinds of ways to create this moralism, but on some principle— there begins to enter in this kind of idea that I'm doing it right, and those people are doing it wrong. And then that tends to create a separation because who wants to be around people that you're better than? Even though you would never use that language even in your own inner psychology, right? Because those other people are impure. They're not doing it right, and they could infect you or worse your children, and they won't be corrected. You keep telling them what they ought to believe, and you've got a news channel telling them what they ought to believe, but they won't believe it, so they're obstinate. There's no sense in talking to them, right? 
Once you create that kind of separation, what enters in is caricature, because what people become when you don't know them is the thing you don't like about them. Right? You see this when marriages drift apart? The person, the persons become more and more what they don't like about each other to each other. You see this about political groups that won't talk to each other. They become more and more the issue you're most angry about. Right? Or, or like even ethnicity. They become more and more merely the stereotype you have about the ethnicity. It's one of the reasons why, why stereotypes and prejudices— well, prejudice by literally isn't, isn't true because it's prejudged, but like a stereotype that tends to be true, like there are stereotypes that tend to be true. The problem is, is that when people are separated, those people become only the stereotypes, and the stereotype, even though maybe partially true, becomes all of what you see in the other person rather than a relative small portion of them as a total human being and everything else. So the reason why stereotypes are so damaging is when stereotype is put together with separation that leads to caricature, it produces this huge differentiation in which people are only the stereotype even if it's true, and half the time they're not. Which leads to passive oppression, where you won't necessarily oppress them, but you won't stand up for them either. To active oppression, to these people need to be stopped, and if we need to take away some of their God-given rights in order to stop them, it's better for everyone. Now, do religious people all over the world do that? Yes. That's why understanding the gospel as distinct from moralism and religion is so critical. I refer you back to Sermon 3 in this series. But this is a human condition. But the opposite can be true as well. There is a, there's a gospel progression, a progression where you intentionally don't do this, right? So one is principled humility. I feel better than them. I know I'm wrong about that. Because even if I am right, and even if they are wrong— my depravity will make me worse than my good philosophy, and the image of God in them will make them better than their bad philosophy. Now that's—I totally stole that from Keller, okay? But I think that's an incredibly important idea. The people we disagree with most in many situations, they will be better than their bad philosophy, even if—let's assume you're right, and I am right about my ideas— the people I disagree with are going to be better than their bad philosophy. They won't be able to help it because they're made in God's image. And I will often be worse than my good philosophy because of my depravity. And so therefore, though I may think I'm righter and therefore better, my presumption has to be that that is a lie being told by my depraved the depraved condition that I'm in, and I need to principally reject it and intentionally move against it. Principled humility can lead, therefore, to intentional relationships, right? So for me, you know, I have a minor in political science. I'm really interested in macroeconomics. I tend to have very specific political ideas. So I have to very intentionally have relationships with people who think I'm nuts, Right? It's really important because there are ways in which I need what they have to offer me. I also need to see that they like the Packers like I do, or they like football, or they hunt, or they breathe, or like they're not aliens, or you know, like they're not what my group's hype says they are. To keep me kind of balanced and like related to the real world, and it also keeps me more honest, right? So I won't caricature them. Which will lead to, if I'm actually talking with them, what I just want to call your experiential empathy. Like, if you just spend time with another person, naturally and emotionally you'll feel a human connection to them. And you'll naturally have some empathy for them, even though you might really disagree with them. What that will lead to is what I've just called romantic advocacy. When they're being oppressed by others, you will just naturally feel like you should be on their side. Even though you think they're nuts. Because to that, because of the intentional relationship, and the principled humility, you feel a connection of humanity, and you go, you can't treat another person like that. They're a person. I don't care what idea they are, or what religion they are, or what race they are, whatever. It doesn't matter. You can't treat a person like that. When that happens, here's what'll happen. Instead of being angry about how ISIS is killing Christians, you'll be angry about everybody they're killing. The, the ethnic people you haven't even heard of, you'll be upset the Baha'is are getting persecuted in Iran, not just Christians, because you shouldn't treat a human being like that. Right? 
Now, you might feel especially close to the spiritual family of Christians, but you'll also feel something, and something romantic almost, of like, we're humans, you can't do that, that's wrong, I don't care how wrong they are, you can't do this to them, which will eventually lead to principled solidarity, where, where you'll say, not just out of an emotional, intuitive sense of connection, but you'll say, no. A human being is this. You cannot treat them that way and come hell or high water, pour all the blood out of my veins. I will stand between you and them. Friends, that is what the gospel can produce in us. Now, if you think that's too complicated, you can just follow the second word in all of these. Right? Humility leads to relationship, which leads to empathy, which leads to advocacy, which leads to solidarity. You just think of it that way. But none of that happens without contact. None of it happens without contact. You have to be with them. Which is kind of, we got, here's where we got this idea as Christians. You ready? The incarnation. Jesus became one of us to influence us, to save us, to draw us, to change us, to create a new people for himself that he intentionally left behind among the nations and intentionally scattered among them and put them among them so they had to live not in their own enclave because that was his intention. The third is that obedience is the price of understanding. Obedience is the price of understanding. There are so many things, friends, there are so many things that you cannot fully appreciate as a human being until you experience them. You can be taught about them first, and you can understand them conceptually, and conceptual understanding can limit the amount of experience necessary to understand things, but there are a lot of—and there are a lot of things that you can learn only through conceptualization. Right? So like math, for example. A lot of math, you can sit down with a teacher and they can help you conceptualize this, how math works. And you can go, oh yeah, okay, so I get that. So this does that and that does that. And, blah, blah. and you, actually, you don't need a lot of like experience of taking two things and putting them together with two things and then counting them to like really understand math, right? But there are other things that like because of the, the way we're like a psychological, intellectual, emotional, bodily kind of unity and how that all works, there's a lot of things you have to experience for you to understand. Right? We talk to younger people. In fact, you know the book Song of Songs in the Bible, the, the sort of like love romance book. There's this verse that comes up over and over again, and the, the woman who's become a wife says— um, you know, women of Jerusalem, I implore you by the does of the field or something that we probably wouldn't say today, not to awaken love before it's time, right? See, she has gone through the experience of longing and desire and sexual complication and stuff that comes with courting and all that kind of thing, and then she marries and so on, and she, she gets— she gets what happens when you feel so emotionally bonded to a person you're romantically connected with. She gets that. And so she goes, do not awaken that before you should, right? And you, you can talk to a 12-year-old, and you can say, listen, sweetie, here's, you need to have these boundaries with boys, and pretty soon there's going to be this. And I know there are crushes right now, but it's going to lead to these sort of unhealthy codependencies. And then you're going to hit puberty right when these sort of strange things are happening. And then you, it's like a terrible snowball. And then blah, right? And they'll look at you and they'll go. And then you can tell they're thinking about something else, right? Because they don't—they haven't tasted of the thing enough yet to conceptualize. They can't conceptualize what it is you're talking about. And here, the thing is, is that so many things in, in growth, in real, humble, true righteousness-centered godliness have to be experienced. But, and they don't make any sense to do conceptually. They only make sense after. So have you ever had this happen like in coaching where like a, a good coach will tell you to do something and you're like, that is not gonna work. And then you do it a few times, and it totally—something clicks for you, and all of a sudden it works. And you're kind of like— So, for example, my daughter's trying to learn how to overhand serve in volleyball, okay? So I was a camp counselor. I've played 
probably thousands of games of beach volleyball. And so like, I cannot understand why anybody can't already do this stuff when they're two. And so I'm trying to teach her how to hit an overhand serve. And one of the things sometimes they'll do in coaching is they'll say, it's not about the hit, it's about the throw, which is actually true. The throw is really important. But don't think about the throw. You throw it up and then you hit through it, right? And you're kind of like, it's not really about the throw. It's about the throw and the hit. Like, I've done it numerous times, right? But there's something about taking a 11-year-old girl's mind off of the hit and getting her to focus on this and to—why? Because the reason she can't serve isn't because she doesn't have enough muscles here. The reason she can't get the ball over the net is because there's people watching her and her friends need and she, her dad yelled at her and she wants to do it and why can't she do this yet? And you just kind of got to get all that out of there so that she can throw the ball up and hit it. And then it goes sailing over the net in most cases, right? Spiritual life is like that. What Jesus needs to do in us, what Jesus needs to do in you is not going to make sense to you. It's going to sound incredibly terrifying. It's going to sound like a great recipe for you never being happy in your life. It's going to sound like entering into being hated by all people. And it's going to sound just jolly awful. Okay? And you will not realize, you cannot actually realize the depth of the wisdom and what Jesus commands of us until you actually walk it out. And so it has to start with a commitment to Jesus himself and that no matter what it looks like it's going to do, you're going to try it. You're going to do it. And then when you walk through it, you'll usually have these massive aha experiences. It's like, oh, okay. That's why that works. Obedience is the price of understanding. You have, if you want to understand, there's oftentimes, it cannot, it, it, it cannot work conceptually. It's one of the reasons why I think we have such a difficult time with the, with the problem of suffering. Right? People are like, well, what if they're, you know, if God is good and he's all-powerful and we're suffering, that doesn't work. Right? Unless God is doing something with suffering that is inherently experiential, that we learn about as we go through it, that we wouldn't understand beforehand because obedience is the price of understanding. If that were true, by definition, you couldn't accept the right answer about suffering. Therefore, you don't like any of them. It's a psychological problem that makes a conceptual answer impossible. People think that there's just no good answer to that. I'm not sure about that. I think there's actually a number of really good answers to that question that we are naturally psychologically incapable of accepting. Because you have to experience it in many cases, whoops, in order for you to realize why it's true. Um, one of the places where Jesus talks about this is he says, he says, my teaching isn't my own. If it comes, it comes from the one who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He says, he says listen, if you really want to do God's will, if that's the desire of your heart, you have to take my teaching and you have to do it. And when you do it, that's when you're going to find out experientially and you go, oh yeah, that totally is, that's right. It is good, true, beautiful, and gracious. Now I see it. I couldn't see this dynamic before and I see it now. Obedience is the price of understanding. All right, we're going to skip that one. So now what? what it, okay, if, if, if that's true, then what? How do we respond? What do we do? How do we act? Okay, just a couple minutes on this. One is, first you've got to start by actually believing convictionally that that's what you're here for, that you're here to serve. Do you believe that? The second is, don't, don't try to be involved in sacrificial service out of fear and pride. Don't do it out of moralism. You'll never make it. You have to seek gospel motivation for sacrificial service. If you're not doing it because of your love of Christ and what he's done out of thankfulness and joy, you're just never going to happen. You're just going to be too angry at what you're giving up. Right? Um, one of the things that needs to happen for a lot of people is you need to relax because much of the sacrificial service you're meant to do is actually already built into your vocational roles and duties that you have. When you go to work and you do a job, 
that improves the lives of other people, even if there's a financial exchange involved out of free will. If you provide something for them they want, and they offer something back to you that is remuneration, you are still providing a service or something for people that is an inherent good in which you serve another person. Now, it may not be deeply sacrificial, but it is something that you do as part of your role in the life that God has given you. It's part of your responsibilities. Because for a lot of us, the reason that we got that financial exchange is because we're going to take that money and go home and take care of our family role with it. We're not going to, you know, spend it on milkshakes, right? When, when you're a mother or a father, a husband or a wife, you are supposed to sacrificially serve your family. You're supposed to sacrificially serve your children, your husband, and your wife. That is primary. That old saying that charity starts at home, the reason why it's kind of like cheeky and frustrating and an abomination and totally true is because it's both true and it can make us really kind of get us sideways. But the fact is, is that love is supposed to start at home because your primary fundamental roles and duties are in the home. If you have one. And are in one. And if you're not, if you're not, if you're like a single person who's an adult, um, there's some really good blog posts and talks, and I think books very soon coming out on an evangelical theology of friendship, the true and innate duties of friendship. That there is a duty of love we have to people close to us that isn't necessarily enforced by family, but is incredibly important and is a true act of sacrificial service. So don't be like, well, what, I gotta go serve every week and I've gotta— bo-. Listen, many, much of the sacrificial service you're called to is for you to live out the roles and duties that you have as part of your life. So relax. Okay? Relax. Um, organic first, then organizational, even though the way we try to teach this at church is in the reverse. Um, one of the things that Alex and I really struggle with sometimes is that we just don't get our family out to service events very often. We just don't get our family, like, out to the soup kitchen or the food pantry or the place to sort medical things or whatever. And sometimes that can be really frustrating with us. You know, we've got four kids, 11 and under. Our lives are kind of busy. I work kind of long weeks. But then we'll bump into people and they'll thank us for all the people we have in our home. And like that, you know, my wife, and then my, you know, my wife realizes that she's mentoring four to 65 young women. And like we have meals at our home and multiple people come to them and there's always somebody dropping in and I'm always doing this. And like we're, we're just constantly serving people. And one of the things that is kind of lost in our age of organizations is the organicness of just serving the people Jesus puts in your path through friendship and hospitality. And a lot of organizations wouldn't be necessary if only the gospel-believing church could be depended on to just serve the people that were in their path. Then if there's something that you really believe must happen that can't get done through that, then taking another step outward into an organization designed for such an end can be really helpful. But you'll have a much better idea what to do through that organization because of the contact you've had with the people you tried to help directly. Second to last is to use the power of predecision. Um, the social scientists have been studying willpower because we have a willpower problem with getting out there and serving, okay? So how do you do it? One way to do it is to decide beforehand you're going to do it and sign up. So you, you go to small group and you sign up for that Friday. You put it on your calendar. You tell everybody you're going to be there, and then you will. Because not only do you have spiritual motivation, but you have fear and pride backing it up too. And you just have the idea, it's so much easier to make a decision when you've told yourself the decision you're all going to make. For those of you that don't come to church that often, right? If you're like a twice a month or one time a month or once a quarter person, just decide you are the kind of person who goes to church. You are a churchgoer. You go every week. Just decide that. Just decide you are a churchgoer and you'll be here twice as much. Because the power of predecision radically changes our motivational structure and pushes us towards success. And then lastly, kickstart this week by actually signing up and getting out and doing it. If you're not signed up for the Saturday, sign up for the Saturday. Do it. Get in there. 
write your name down, sign up, go for it, do it, because that will give you some momentum. You add that to predecision, to conviction, you add these things together, and you'll get going in the right direction. But you, one of the things that, oh crap, I totally forgot about this. Oh, stink, I mean. Um, here's, now, here's the thing. The reason we're doing this in Blueprint, okay, two more minutes. The reason we're doing this in Blueprint is the thing that we are sort of jump-starting this week is how we do this all year, okay? All we're doing in Blueprint is we're doing one week, we're kind of doing all together what every small group is meant to do quarterly all year long through the same mechanisms, right? So we have small groups, and then we have this online tool called the Hub, on which we can connect and gather into small groups because it has our connective information on it, and then it has all the service opportunities so that we can plan for action. And so you do it with your small group, or you do it with the church this week, and then in a couple of months, your small group will do it again. And all you'll do is in a small group meeting, you'll get on the hub, you'll pick a service opportunity, you'll pick a day, all the work is done for you, and then you don't have another meeting, you just don't have small group that week, and you meet at the service area, and you serve your guts out for a little while together. It's very simple. I think it's decently well organized. We just need to get it rolling. And so here's what I need from you if you're not a small group leader, and you're not about to become one. You take this foot, and you kick your small group leader in the butt. Because Lloyd and I are being like, this is what you do, right? And then what you say is, hey, when are we serving? Hey, we're supposed to serve quarterly. When are we serving? Hey, is tonight the night we get on the hub to decide what we're, what we're going to do? When are we going to do that? I feel like we haven't served in like three months. Isn't it time for us to do that? I know there's some great opportunities out there, and I need, I need all you guys to help me get out there and do it. If they get pressure from you and us, they'll remember. It's not they don't want to do it. It's just they're thinking of a lot of stuff. And their lives are busy too, and, and they don't know how you're going to respond. They don't know if you're going to groan. When they say, hey, it's time to serve, and you're like, oh. No, they need for you to be like, awesome! And then you'll sign up, and then you'll do it, and then you'll get in a rhythm of doing it, and you'll serve together, and you'll have impact, and you'll have contact, and you'll experience truth through obedience. And you'll live out what Jesus said when he said, just like me, he said, I didn't come to to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So it should be with you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people of sacrificial service, a people who serve our city lovingly, a people who are for their good, and that they slowly grow to know that we want to live for their good and for the good of all people, even in spite of the slander they may hear about us. And we pray that you would help us to be like Jesus, to be sacrificially generous in all things and in all ways for your glory, for the good of all people, and for the transformation that we long for. Because you said in Matthew's gospel that anybody who hungered and thirsted for righteousness would be filled. So, please fill us. We pray in his name. Amen.